It was a sunny day about 20 years ago, and I'm in a raft with friends rafting down the White Salmon River. And this day in particular, there were seven of us seated in a 15-foot rubber raft. Sun is overhead. Water is splashing up from the rapids onto our life jackets. And the lead guide is behind us calling out commands to paddle, stroke, paddle, because he wanted to keep us going through the strong current of the river. And then right before the moment of truth, right before the waterfall, right before the class four rapids and waterfall, in case you know, there's five classifications of rapids, and this is class four, some serious stuff, about a 20-foot drop, and Ben, our guide in the back, yells, hold on! It's paddle, 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 hold on! And we went over. I got a picture of it here. I'm in the green helmet. It's about a 20-foot drop. Sometimes all you can do is hold on. I panicked a little bit. I closed my eyes. I think I tried to grab whatever I could grab. I think there was a rope around the edge of the raft. I tried to grab for that. I tried to grab anyone that was about two feet around me. Try to keep my wife from falling out of the raft. You can see our guide in the back is about ready to fall out the back of the raft. Because in that moment, there's not much else you can do. Because you can't stop the raft, and you can't stop the river, and you can't stop gravity. So what do you do? You hold on. You hold tight and you hope it's strong enough to make it out the other side. But here's the million dollar question. When you're falling, when you're flailing, when you have that feeling when the, your stomach goes up in your throat, what do you hold on to? What do you hold on to? On that day, we made it through. But it reminds me, even this morning, what are you holding on to? Because some of you feel like you're in that same kind of season, and you can't control this, and you can't control that, and you can't stop the river, and you can't stop the raft. What are you holding on to? Open your Bibles this morning, if you have one, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, verse 7. We'll have it up on the screen in a moment, or you can read it in your own copy. Today we're in letter 6 of 7. We've been in the seven letters of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We're almost done. I was trying to line up the series to end before the Lenten series started. We will have a Lenten series that starts, but we're going to finish this one first. This one is written to the Church of Philadelphia, letter number six. Can anyone guess the message that Jesus gives to the Church of Philadelphia? Hold on. Hold tight. Hold fast. Here's Revelation chapter three, verse seven. 
He writes, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, you have set before you, excuse me, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia the city of brotherly love, the, the original city of brotherly love in Turkey, not in Pennsylvania. And while we don't know a ton about the inner workings of the life of this church, we do know this. The church in Philadelphia is small, the church in Philadelphia is weak, and the church in Philadelphia is weary. They're having a rough go. We're having a tough time. It's a small community. It is not large. It was not flashy. It was not impressive by any sense of the imagination. We're told in verses 8 and 9 here that they're struggling because of persecution. Specifically, uh, the Jewish community, the Jewish synagogue, they were upset at the Christian community claiming that they weren't the people of God. And so they were, be, they were barring the Christians from any Jewish synagogues, and there was persecution from the Jewish community, those who were ethnically Israel, ethnically Jewish, were oppressing the Christian church. And all of that takes its toll. Verse 8 says they have little power. They're running on fumes. But they've kept God's word, they haven't denied Jesus' name. And in the midst of the struggle, they've chosen the path of patient endurance, which isn't glamorous. <laughs> Not going to find that in the headlines, but they patiently endured hardship. So this, this little Philadelphian church was a gritty, small community. Jesus followers. Not much power, no notoriety, no fame, not a very splashy website, not much going on from the outside. And yet, what's interesting is, as Jesus writes them, he has no words of critique for them. Most of the churches, Jesus critiques them and says, I have this against you. He doesn't say any of that to this church. Instead, what he says to them is this, hold on. Hold fast. Keep going. Have patient endurance. Keep on keeping on. 
And this is the beauty of this letter, in my opinion, is that we don't know much about their church, but we do know a lot about the Jesus who shows up and speaks to this church. There may be a little church here, but they have a big Jesus. And little churches need to be reminded of how big that Jesus is. What do you hold on to when you struggle, when you're weak, when you're weary, when things aren't going the way you want to, when you wonder if you can keep on keeping on? Hold on to a big Jesus. So today, as we walk through this, I want to give six big Jesus reminders about who Jesus is and what we can hold on to. That may sound like a lot. I actually, I I really only want to preach about one of them, but I'm going to name all six of them as we go through. Let me make my way through the other five. So first, hold on, church. Hold on to the fact that Jesus is the Holy One. He's the Holy One. And again, in general sense, like, oh, that sounds nice. Sounds good. It sounds churchy. Yeah, Jesus is holy. But when this church in verse 7, the very beginning, says the words of the Holy One, they're told that Jesus is the Holy One. He's the one speaking to them. What Jesus is doing is he's grabbing an Old Testament phrase. He's, He's borrowing from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet had a favorite title for God. And if you read Isaiah, it shows up 25 times in the book of Isaiah that God is called the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. 25 times throughout the book of Isaiah. It's it's Isaiah's favorite title for God. It's a phrase that reminds people about the, the pure, perfect otherness of God. The pure, perfect otherness of God. That God is morally flawless, that God is sinlessly perfect, that God is untainted in purity. And if you read the scriptures, when people show up in the presence of a holy God, typically the response is to fall down flat on their face like they're dead. When they get a sense of who God is in his purity, in his holiness, in his character, the typical response is, woe is me, and I fall flat on my face. And Jesus says, that's who I am, the words of the Holy One. God in his holiness stands out and stands above. Like there's a line of demarcation between who God is, that he is above all, that he is different than all, that he is distinct and over all. He is holy. So as Jesus communicates with this struggling little church in small town Turkey, he picks up this phrase from Isaiah and he applies it to himself. And he says, I'm writing to you as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Hold on to the Holy One, church. When you don't know what to hold on to, hold on to the Holy One who is above all. The purity of Jesus, the distinctiveness of Jesus, the the moral weightiness of Jesus, the, the, the purity of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who always does what is good and right and perfect. He's the only one who always does what is good and right and perfect. The Holy One. But I'm not here to preach about that. Next one. 
Jesus, hold on to the true one. Verse 7, the words not only of the holy one, but the words of the true one. And Jesus, in his life and ministry, he said this himself. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims to be truth. He is truth. Truth is not just an idea, but truth is a person. He is the true one. And in this setting and situation, he's the true Messiah of Israel which really, again, was at the heart of their tribulation and trials and heartache. Because again, the Jewish community in town was persecuting the church. The Jewish people were claiming, we're the only true people of God and you're not. And there was a battle there. Jesus has pretty hard words for the Jewish community there. Again, Jesus is a Jew. (laughs) And yet he calls them the synagogue of Satan. He says that they were lying. And he says that even though they are ethnically Jewish, he's saying that they're not Jews because they're denying the promise of Abraham in Jesus. So at the heart of this battle between who is true and what is true, Jesus says, I am true. Hold on to me. I am the truth. I am the true one. He's the holy one. He's the true one. Jesus has ultimate purity and ultimate integrity. But I'm not here to preach about that either. Third thing, that Jesus is also the door opener and the holder of the keys. That's what he says. He's the door opener and the holder of the keys. Now we're talking about access and authority. In verse 7, Jesus claims to have the key of David and that Jesus alone has open and shut authority, a door that no one can shut. In verse 8, he says, I've set before you an open door. Now again, Jesus is barring from the Old Testament. He's borrowing again from the book of Isaiah. In fact, you'll find that Jesus goes back to the book of Isaiah a lot when talking to the Philadelphian church. And I won't go into all the background in the story, but Isaiah 22, there's a story of judgment against a man named Shebna who abuses his power for selfish gain. And as a result, God judges Shebna and replaces him with a different man named Eliakim who becomes the keeper of the keys in the house of the Lord. This is Isaiah 22, 21. It says, And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. So Jesus, again, I don't speak of him this way, but he's a brilliant scholar. He knows the prophets. He knows Isaiah. He grabs that story about Eliakim having the key. And don't think like house key, car key. In those days, to open the gate, it was a mat, like 
The key went on your back to be carried, and it was the massive key that would open up the gates to allow access and entry into the temple. And Jesus says, I have the key of David. I am the key. I have the key. And he's riffing on this. And he's saying, I am the one who has access. I am the one who controls who goes in and out. Jesus is saying, I'm actually the greater Eliakim. And I have access and authority over all. So to this weak, weary, discouraged, beat down, persecuted, small, not flashy, not significant community, Jesus speaks to them and says, I have opened the door. I have given you access. I have authority over it all, which is good news because when you feel like you've hit the wall, it's good to know the one who opens the door. What do, I, what do I hold on to when it feels like all things have fallen apart? When I feel like I can't figure out a way forward or a way through? Isn't it a good thing to know that Jesus claims to be the door opener, the key holder, the way maker, the access grantor with unstoppable authority? Don't you know that Jesus himself has the keys of hell and the grave? Don't you know that Jesus has the keys of death? Don't you know he has the keys to make a way where there is no way? That he has the keys to the throne of heaven itself. And through himself, in himself, through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has made a new and living way that allows us by faith to boldly come before the throne of grace with confidence. Jesus says, I have the key of David. And the doors that I open, no one can shut. And when I shut a door, no one can open because I am the one who has the key. I am the one who has authority. Hold on to that. So he's the holy one, he's the true one, he's the door opener, he's the one with purity and integrity and authority, but that's not what I want to talk to you about today. I could also point out, verse 11, that Jesus is coming quickly. That's what he says. He's the one who's coming quickly. I'm coming soon. Those are his very words. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. And now we're talking about expediency. That Jesus is the one who has purity and he's the one who has integrity and he's the one who has authority and he's the one who has expediency and he's coming soon. And I know a cynic would be like, yeah, right, Jesus, you said 2,000 years ago you're coming soon. It's been a little while. You're about as fast as government bureaucracy. And I could lean into the fact that 2 Peter 3.8 tells us, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So for the God who is outside of space and time, it's only been a couple days but I won't even lean into that. Because I believe, honestly, to this church, to this community, he has come. And he did come quickly. And there are times and seasons when the Lord comes and he ministers to his people in the moment of their hour of need. 
and he did it then and he does it again and he does it all the time where he comes by his spirit and he comes quickly to the aid of his people because he hears the cries of his people he's close to the brokenhearted and he comes to bind up our wounds so hold on to the one who's coming quickly his purity his integrity his authority his expediency but that's not what I want to preach to you about today I could also point out that he is the one who's not finished yet. Hold on to that. Hold on to the one who's not finished yet. I could point you to the end of this little letter. Um, Jesus says that he's not finished yet. And now we're talking about the tenacity of Jesus. It's a call to hold on to the fact that the ending of the story is actually going to be better than the beginning. That's his promise. Beginning in verse 12, he talks about the one who overcomes. He talks about the one who conquers. And Jesus makes promises to this small, weak, fledgling, flailing community that one day they will be a temple of strength, a people of strength. He promises them here to make them a pillar in the temple of my God. He promises them that. You may feel weak now, but one day you'll be a pillar in the temple of my God. He promises them a permanent place that they never shall go out of it. He promises them a personal name. He says, the etchings of God will be all over you. I'll write on that one, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my new name, my God, my God, my God will be all over you. And Jesus is able to look down the corridor of time and he pictures the scene of the end of the story, at the end of the age, of a new heavens and a new earth and a new temple, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And instead of it being a stone temple built in the Middle East, it will be the temple of the living God, not with stones, but with his redeemed people as the pillars, where God will come to dwell and be with us. It's a place of worship. New pillars embossed with new names, which reminds us not to despise the day of small things or small beginnings or to despise the seasons of weakness or not to get too caught up in the early scenes of the movie or the early scenes of the story or the early seasons of struggle or the early conflict or the early problems or the early pain or the early discouragements because all of those, Jesus says, is actually playing a part of a bigger story that will commence one day when I come back and you will be pillars in my place with my name all over you. I've got plans for you and it may not look good now. It may not be impressive now. It may be filled with pain and weakness now, but I've got bigger things in store for you. Hold on to that, that he is the God who's not finished yet. Strength made out of weakness, beauty out of ashes. Some of you need to be reminded this morning to hold on to the God who's not finished yet. But that's not what I want to preach about either. Here's, here is the thing I want to show you, the last thing. Hold on 
because Jesus is the one who validates in love. So verse 9, here it is. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. (laughs) That's actually a pretty crazy scene that Jesus talks about. And once again, Jesus is taking an Old Testament story from, guess where? The book of Isaiah, a lot of Isaiah in his letter to to, uh, Philadelphia. And he's taking some other stories from Isaiah and he's flipping them on their head as he speaks to the church in Philadelphia. So, again, I won't try and belabor this, but there are a couple passages in Isaiah which talk about a future when the enemies of Israel will come and bow down before them. And not in a like, weird worship way, because there's only one who is worthy of worship, and that is God alone. But he says there's going to be a day that the enemies of Israel, and he names the nations that will come down. I'll, I'll read this to you. This is Isaiah 45, 14. Isaiah 45, 14 says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. Again, not in worship, but they will plead with you saying, Surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. He promises a day when the the nations will come and and fall down and like, there's something in you. God is in you. This is true. We want to worship him. Also, uh, Isaiah 49, 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and queens, your nursing mothers. And with faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. And then you will know that I am the Lord and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Or Isaiah 60 Verse 14, a different picture of the same kind of a scene. Isaiah 60, 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So the promises to Israel were that there would be a day when the enemies of Israel would come and acknowledge what God is doing among them. And yet the, the, the irony of this is, is that it's flipped in Revelation 3 where then now Jesus takes all those ideas and says to the Jewish people in town, there will be a day to come amidst all the past persecution and name-calling and division and enmity and strife, there will be a day when they will come and bow down before you and I will declare, I have loved you. There's a moment of public vindication where Jesus says, I will bring those that made your life miserable, those that questioned you, persecuted you, mistreated you, and I'm going to remind them, I love you. You are mine. they will learn that I have loved you. 
I'm convinced that Jesus knows how hard it is to keep going in the pain of life. And that Jesus knows that there are seasons when we have little strength and little power. And Jesus knows that it isn't easy when you face opposition. In fact, those hard seasons are some of the most draining seasons of life. Those times when you feel like you can't go on. Those feels like you don't know where to turn to. You don't know how to stop the raft from going over the waterfall. When you feel like giving up and you feel like giving in. And he wants this struggling church, this persecuted church, this weary church, to know that there will be a day when he vindicates them in his love. When he says, I'm going to make a scene and I'm going to tell everyone, I have loved you. This is my beloved. Not just I love them, but I have loved them. Even when it was a mess, even when it didn't look right from the outside, even in the midst of all the pain and problems, I have loved them. I have loved them then and I love them now and I will keep loving them until the end of the age. All the way through, I have loved them. I have loved them. I have loved you. I have loved you. What can you hold on to most? The vindicating love of Jesus. There will be a public proclamation when all will learn. When Jesus is like, hey, everyone, I want you to pay attention. I've loved them. They're mine. Oh, the power of love. And to me, all these things are good and worthy of being held on to. Jesus has purity, and Jesus has integrity, and Jesus has authority. Jesus has expediency. Jesus has tenacity. He's not finished yet, but I would argue that one that tops it all is the intimacy of the love of God in Jesus for you. He wants you to know that he loves you. He wants wants them to know that he loves you. He wants your enemies to know that he loves you. He wants everyone. He is not bashful about how much he loves you. And there will be a day, one day, when he says, hey, everybody, I've loved them. I have loved them. Hold on to that. It's the love of God spoken into our deepest places of vulnerability. There's a poem by Pedro Arupe called Fall in Love. I think I have it on the screen. He says, nothing is more practical than finding God than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, and what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. Falling in love decides everything. And I would even up it by saying, being told that you are loved reframes anything. This last week, uh, the elders were talking. And in the course of our conversation, a few of us mentioned that at times we feel like misfits. 
and we think that we're the only ones who feel that way. That we have this innate sense that we don't fit, or that we don't belong, or that we're not enough. There's times when we feel that we're not smart enough, and we feel like we're not cool enough, and we feel like we're not put together enough, and we're not perfect enough, and we feel like we're the only one. And Jesus goes out of his way to publicly confirm and affirm his love for those that feel like misfits. I want everyone to know I have loved you. So yes, hold on to Jesus, his holiness, his trueness, his door-opening ability, his coming quickly, the fact that he's not finished. But above all, may we learn to hold on to the intimacy of the love of God in Christ, and may we be able to receive and understand and comprehend our belovedness. As Henry Nouwen once said, all I want to say to you is you are the beloved. And all I hope is that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. And my only desire is to make these words reverberate in every corner of your being. When you don't know what to hold on to, may you hold on to being loved. And may that be the fuel for our patient endurance. May we hold on. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I thank you for this little church in Philadelphia so many years ago. And I thank you for this little church in Olympia. And I see some of the same gritty characteristics. Not a lot of flash, not big in size, not a whole lot of power. But God, may we have a picture of how much you love us. May we hold on to our belovedness. May that echo and reverberate in the chambers of our heart individually and collectively, may we hear your words, your love, and may we hold on because you have loved us so well. So God, I pray for the the things that stand in the way of that, the things that keep us from receiving love from you. May you tear those down. And in your holiness and in your authority. Lord, may you work. May you speak. May we hear. Maybe even with fresh ears again of your love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.